So for uh, these last five weeks, uh, we've been doing a series called Open Doors, which is, uh, has the same name as the campaign that we're currently in. And this series has really been an exploration of some of the values that not only led us to do this campaign, but uh, the values that shape who we are as Cornerstone Community Church. It's important to realize that every person, every family, every organization, every society has values. There are things that we value more than other things. That's inescapable. It's currently going on in your life right now. It influences and shapes the decisions you make. It determines what you prioritize. And when you're forced to choose between one thing and another thing, it's your values that are going to lead you to make a decision. And it's even possible to have the same beliefs as another person, but have different values. And so, you know, this is especially true in churches, I think where you can look at two different churches, and yes, the doctrine that they believe is the same in essence, yet the experience of going to that church and being part of that community is, is very different. It's very different because that's the layer of value that comes in and changes decisions. It informs choices. And if you think of an iceberg, and the visible part of an iceberg is really just the choices and the actions that we make as individuals and as organizations. Um, But really what's informing so much of what we see is under the surface of our beliefs and our values. And so it's very important to pay close attention to what you're valuing. You are valuing things. The question is, are you paying attention to what you're valuing? Uh, When I was younger, I spent a fair amount of time in India. And I remember very clearly uh, in northern India, there's a temple that is built in the middle of the river. And this temple is hundreds of years old. I can't remember exactly um, the age, if not close to a 1,000 years old. It's an enormous river, powerful. And in, in the Hindu culture, this was a holy river. And so there is great incentive to, to bring the worship as close to the river as possible. And this temple is an engineering marvel. Hundreds of years ago, they were able to have the intellect the skill, the wealth to be able to construct a temple like this in the middle of a river, and it would last for hundreds of years. And if you think about even the power of erosion, how something man-made at that point could last that long in a location like that. It's amazing. It's unbelievable what they were able to accomplish. And so you start to think about this country that has been um, stricken by extreme poverty, Um, where people, uh, the lifespan is so short for centuries, um, the the, um, quality of life was terrible in India. And you can think, how is it possible that they're able to construct something so big and amazing and have the technological advancement and intellect to be able to do something like that, and yet that doesn't translate into an improved quality of life? And the answer is, I mean, there's a bigger answer to this, but in essence, it's because their belief about uh, reincarnation led them to not really care about the poor because they're getting what they deserve. Um, But more than that, their value of worship led them to build this kind of thing that direct where they put their time and their attention and their efforts and their energy. 
because that's how they valued worship. And so it's very important to think about where our values are and what they are. And so we're doing a series on our values because we want to become aware of what's informing our decisions, about where we as a church, uh, what's informing how and why we spend our money and our time and our energy. Because there's a lot of different ways that we can do that, even though we believe the same things as other churches. And so as we look at these values, it isn't to say that these are the only things we value. It's to say that we are intentionally placing greater emphasis on these values. And therefore, we allow them more than other things to shape how we do ministry. And really, our values more than anything is what makes Cornerstone Cornerstone. And so, so far um, in the series, we've looked at hospitality, about opening our doors. We've looked at the value of gospel centrality, at keeping the gospel at the center of, of what we do and how we think. We've looked at the, the value of generosity. That's our privilege to give away. Last week, we looked at the value of community, of being together, of how we need each other. And so this morning, we're looking at the value of living sacrifices. But that's, that sounds a bit weird, living sacrifices. So what we're going to say is, our worship is our lifestyle. Our worship is our lifestyle. So in order to unpack what that means and the implications of that, I want us to turn to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, we're just going to look at verses 1 and 2. Romans chapter 12. So, as you're turning there, it will be on the screen as well. But this is what Paul writes. And this is after 11 chapters of, of thought and argument. He says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This, this is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, is good, pleasing, and perfect will. So let's just pause and pray here. And so, Father, as we come to your word, as we come to your truth, as we bring ourselves to you, God, we want to be shaped by the truth. We want our minds to be informed by what's true. And so help us, Father, this morning. We need your help. We need your help in being able to see. We need your help in being able to listen. We need your help in being able to apply. And so on every level, God, we invite you here and we say, speak to us. We need you more this morning than we did even yesterday. And so would you wake us up to that, open our eyes. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And so Paul has this uh, little picture. He uses this little metaphor to talk about uh, the new sacrifices that God is, is interested in. And he uses the Old Testament imagery of temple sacrifice. And the m- metaphor he uses is that of a worshiper 
carrying in an, an offering. Now, we're in church right now, and we have the practice of routine of coming to a church building, but we really have little understanding of the experience that they would have had in the Old Testament of coming to the temple. The routine of going to the temple was, is much different than going to a church building, um, even though we might think of this as a temple in some ways. Um, but you see, it wasn't just a place to connect and hear, um, hear teaching and connect with each other. The temple was a place that you brought a physical offering. You would bring it to this place. It was this heavy animal that you would bring from your home. And depending on how far away your home was to the temple, it would be almost a burden or a task to bring this animal into this temple. And there are really two kinds of offerings in the Old Testament. One is a sin offering. And so uh, the people, they would, they would recognize a need for forgiveness, and they would be longing for this and seeking this, and they would bring this animal into the temple. And the animal would be slaughtered. And it's a messy process. I think sometimes we clean that up a little bit in our heads. If you think of a place where animals are brought to all the time for slaughtering, it's a messy process. Blood, insects, stink. Dealing with sin was messy. But as you brought this offering and the offering was accepted, it was a symbol that your sins had been accepted, that this animal was in some way a substitute for you. It was taking what was to be on you and it was going on itself. And so we have this picture of a sin offering. And what's amazing, of course, in the New Testament is that Jesus comes along and in his death he says, I am your sin offering. And if you read the book of Hebrews, the whole book of Hebrews is about Jesus as our sin offering. He's the one that comes in our place. He's our substitute. And so the the, um, offering that Paul's talking about here is not the sin offering. There's another kind of offering that they could bring to the temple and had a slightly different meaning. And this offering was called the whole burnt offering. And again, they would bring an animal to the temple. But this animal was not an ordinary animal. This animal was the best animal. It was without blemish. It was perfect. And so what would happen is that this animal would be burnt. Again, gruesome. And every part of this animal would be consumed in the fire. But the demand and the requirement of the whole burnt offering was that it was your absolute best of what you had to offer. Why? The reason is because this animal would have been the most expensive. You could have got the most money for it. And so by bringing this kind of offering, you were saying to God, I'm giving you my best. I'm totally devoted to you. My whole life is consecrated to you. I'm not, hold, I'm not giving you my leftovers. I'm not giving you uh, my second best. I'm giving you my very best as an offering to you to show you that I'm devoted to you. I'm completely devoted to you. And Paul has this offering in mind when he says, offer your bodies now as living sacrifices. Except this is a very strange terminology. I mean, it might be familiar to us now because if you've grown up in the church, you may have, this is probably a familiar passage to you. But he says, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Sacrifice means to kill. To kill off. Living means 
to be alive, to be among the living. And so it's almost contradictory that you're now supposed to bring this alive killing to God. And what he's saying is that there's been a change. Paul is saying we need to fundamentally change how we view worship. He's saying there is a new kind of worship. And what does the passage say that's true and proper? There is a new kind of worship that is holy and pleasing to God. There is a new kind of way to demonstrate our complete devotion to God. And it's not by going to the temple and giving him our very best animal. To bring it into our context, it's not by going here on Sunday morning regularly and taking good sermon notes and being involved in the songs. That's not the kind of worship that God is ultimately pleased with. He says that the worship that God is pleased with is this, that we offer our bodies, that we offer every part of our life, that we say, God, there's no part of my life that I'm not offering to you. You have reign over every part of me. You have reign over my schedule. I'm trusting you with my job. I'm trusting you with my business decisions. I'm trusting you with my attitude. I'm giving you my talents. I'm giving you my time. I'm giving you my priorities. I'm saying that you direct my thoughts. I'm saying that you inform my tone. I'm saying that my emotions, I submit to you. I'm saying my home is something that is yours to use. I'm saying my marriage is for your glory. I'm saying my singleness is for your glory. I'm saying my income is not my income, it's your income. I'm saying the investments that I have are not for my gain one day ultimately, but for how you want to use them for your purposes. I'm saying it's my vehicle and what I drive. I'm saying it's the friends that I have and the people that I spend time with. I'm saying it's my food that I eat and the drinks that I drink and my alcohol consumption and my vocabulary and what I do and where I live and who I talk to and what time I get up and what I do with my free time. I'm saying, God, it's every part of me. It's yours. Every part of me. That's the offering that I'm bringing to you. All of this I bring to you in worship, and I trust you with it. God, I'm not going to give you my leftovers. I'm not going to give you part of me, and then I'm not going to keep part of me and just give you what's comfortable. I'm I'm saying what's true and proper worship is every part of my life. There's no part of me that we shouldn't offer up to God. And so, yes, let's sing songs here in worship as we gather, but let's make the worship song that we ultimately want to sing the song of our life. And that song is most beautiful and most sweet in God's ears when that life is filled with love and compassion for other people. That's true and proper worship. That's what is holy and pleasing to God. And so one of the ways this value affects the way that we do ministry at Cornerstone is that we as leaders and pastors want to pour our time into energy into fostering that kind of worship among us. And so we think that Sunday morning gatherings are really important. We do. They're incredibly important for personal growth, and especially, as we looked at last week, they're incredibly important for community as we learn and grow and meet together. But the worship that we're most concerned about and the worship that's going to take up the most place in our priority is the worship that happens when we leave these doors. That's our focus. 
And so to speak practically, yes, we could probably improve the quality of our worship gatherings. Whoever's teaching in the Sunday morning, that could be their sole, their sole thing that they look to do in a week. That everything is white from the calendar and they have the maximum amount of time to perform, to create the best possible sermon. We could do that. We could hire an experienced pastor whose whole responsibility is to give leadership to our Sunday morning experiences. We could do that. That's something that we could do. We could hire that kind of position. We could divert budget lines to seriously upgrade the quality of our equipment and our technology and our stage decor. That's something that we could do. And the point is saying that the values that lead to those kind of decisions are not necessarily bad values. It's not to say that churches that make those decisions are doing something wrong. It's to say that those values are not informing or prioritizing our decisions here. And so if we're forced to have to choose between um, pouring more and more energy into improving the quality of our Sunday morning gathering at the sacrifice of spending more time to lead us as a congregation to live more worshipful lives every other hour of the week, then the one is going to trump the other. The value of lifestyle worship is going to trump the value of making this time as, as, as slick and smooth as possible. And so there's so many implications to how we think about this value as a church. And so um, what I want to do now is do a bit of a psychology lesson. And I find this stuff very interesting. So bear with me as we get to my point at the very end. Okay? So there's a, there's a um, psychology professor at Princeton named Daniel Kahneman. In 2002, he won the Nobel Prize for Economic Sciences. He has pioneering work. He's the leading psychologist of how we make decisions, thinking through how does our brain work when we actually make a decision. This book, Thinking Fast and Slow, came out in 2011. It's very interesting. If you're interested in these kinds of things, I'd highly recommend it. In it, he unpacks his understanding of how the brain works. And although these do not exist biologically, he says it's as if there are two systems always at work in our brain when we're making decisions. He says system one thinks fast and system two thinks slow. So system one which is our fast thinking, operates automatically and quickly with little or no effort and no sense of voluntary control. And so I'll give you an example of this. Berlin, show the picture. Okay, so you looked at this picture, and as quickly as you saw that this woman's hair is dark, you knew that she was angry. Furthermore, what you saw probably even extended into the future. You anticipated that she's about to yell some very unkind words at you. And you maybe even imagined what she was going to do next. You did not mean to immediately assess her mood or predict what she was going to do, but it just happened automatically. As soon as you saw it, your brain just did these things without you intending for, that, for your brain to do that. And so system one does this kind of thinking. It detects... Um, it detects that it does things like detecting that one object is more distant than the other. It helps you realize all of a sudden the source of a sound or 
to complete the phrase bread and butter. You're not thinking of it, it just automatically happens. You can detect hostility in a voice or in a face. If I ask you the question, what's two plus two? You say four without doing the math in your head. It's just automatic. It happens. If you read large words on billboards or drive a car on an empty road, it doesn't require focus or paying attention. It's something your brain is doing automatically. System two is different. It allocates attention to mental activities that demand effort. And so here's another example for you. Go ahead, Berlin. So I, you see this, and you immediately know that this is a multiplication pro- problem. You knew that immediately. And you probably knew that you could solve it with paper and pencil. And I think I even saw some of you start to write down and solve this on your uh, paper right now. You also had some vague, intuitive knowledge about the possible results. So you would know that the answer is not 20,689. Um, and you'd know that the answer couldn't be 24. That doesn't make sense. But without spending some time on the problem, however, you would not be certain that the answer is not 568. It's actually 408. So a precise solution did not come to your mind, but you probably could have solved this if you took the time to solve it. And so an example of system two thinking is you maintain a faster walking speed that is natural for you. You monitor the appropriateness of your behavior in a social situation. You count the occurrences of the letter on a page. You have to recall a phone number from your past, or you have to park in a narrow space or drive in bad weather. Have you ever noticed that when you're driving bad weather, you probably turn the volume down? Your brain is focusing in on a task. And so Daniel Kahneman explores these two systems and makes the case that we need these systems to think and process the world. And they interact with each other, but sometimes they lead us astray. They create problems in our life. So I'll give you another example of this, okay? This is a very simple math problem. I'm not trying to trick you in, the, in the, how it's framed. It's just as it says it is, okay? So you can put that on the screen, Berlin. A bat and a ball cost $1.10. The bat costs $1 more than the ball. How much does the ball cost? Most likely, a number came to your mind right away. That number was probably 10. Meaning, you intuitively thought the ball cost 10 cents. That's system one. However, if you take another moment to do the math, which is a system two task, you'll find that if the ball costs 10 cents and the bat is a dollar more, then that would mean the bat costs a dollar 10. And a dollar 10 plus 10 cents is a dollar 20, which doesn't make sense. It can't be the cost. The true cost of the ball is 5 cents. And so... This is an example. I'm not going to do a poll here to see how many of you got this right or wrong. (laughs) Now, even if you got the answer right, you intuitively probably thought the answer was 10 cents, and then you did the mental effort of checking that. But we know, this is what Daniel Kahneman says, we know a significant fact about anyone who says the ball costs 10 cents. That person did not actively check whether the answer was correct. And their system, too, endorsed an intuitive answer 
that it could have rejected with a small investment of effort. Now, I don't give you this puzzle to make you feel dumb. You're not dumb if you got it wrong. In fact, this is a puzzle. It's a famous psychological puzzle that's been given to um, MIT, Harvard, and Princeton students, and more than 50% of them get it wrong. And if you go to less selective universities, that number is over 80%. One of the points that he makes is that our brains are wired to take the path of most cognitive ease. Whatever a decision, whatever is the easiest route to make a decision, that's the route our brain is going to take. Our brain is doing a lot of things all of the time. It's monitoring systems through our body that, you know, that we can't even comprehend all that it's doing. And so it doesn't want to take a lot of effort to process something if it can get to a solution really quickly. uh, Daniel Kahneman says, our brain follows the law of least effort. And he says that laziness is built deep into our nature. There are many applications of this idea. And if you read the book, it's it's, it's him unpacking application and application of how these two systems interact and the problems they create and how they lead to biases and judgment and judgment, errors in judgment. But one of the applications of this law of least effort is that it's very hard for us to think in both and terms. We much prefer either or. It's, it's hard for us to think in both and. In fact, there is a word for it when you experience mental discomfort from holding two ideas which seem seemingly contrary called cognitive dissonance. It's actually a feeling like my, my, I'm, I'm, my brain is feeling uncomfortable because it seems like I'm holding two ideas which can't go together at the same time. And so it's much easier for us to divide the world into boxes or blacks and whites. It's much easier for, for us to think, you're either on my side or you're not on my side. It's easier to think that that person is either a good person or a bad person. Their motives are either all good or they're all bad. You know, either God chooses us or we choose God. Things are either secular or spiritual. Meaning, I want to, this is the point I'm making with all this, is that your brain is actively working against you to systematically divide your life into things that your faith affects and things that your faith has no bearing on. And you and I are both blind, all of us are blind, to the way that this is taking place in our life right now. Of course, if you're a follower of Jesus here this morning, you would agree, of course, God, you're going to give you every part of my life. But there are things that you're blind to that we are saying, God, yes, in theory, I'm agreeing to this, but we're actually not doing this. It takes work, it takes mental effort to think through more deeply how our faith informs our decisions and our priorities and our actions and our schedules. And so we will always default to in-the-box thinking when it comes to to God and our faith. It's what our brains are actually... um, more naturally doing, they're lazy, they're doing this. But when it comes to our faith, when it comes to saying that I'm offering you my life, that I'm giving my body as a living sacrifice to you, we're saying there are no boxes. There can't be boxes in our life. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.31, 
that whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, you're eating and drinking somehow can be done for the glory of God. There is no part of you. There is no boxes when it comes to the sacrifice you offer to God. But the temptation we will always face and we have to fight against is to categorize. This is why Paul in verse 2 says in Romans chapter 12, the passage I read already, he says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The patterns of this world are constantly at work conforming us. They conform us from the outside. They shout at us. They shout at us saying things like, you need this level of income to get respect. They shout at us saying, you need the approval of this group of people to feel good about yourself. They shout at us saying, if you can't do this thing, you have nothing to contribute. They shout at us saying, you don't need other people. You can keep your life together on your own. They shout at us saying, your value is earned, not given. The patterns of the world are shouting at us. And more than that, the patterns of this world are whispering seductively at us, saying your life would be easier and better if you had this toy or that house. You're smarter than other people because you've been way more successful. Your desires and feelings are most important, and that's where you'll find fulfillment in life. They say, don't let anybody see how much you're hurting because then people will know that you're weak. The patterns of this world are constantly at work trying to conform us from the outside. And Paul says, watch out, be alert. These things are influencing us. Don't let the outward affect us. There's a better way. And he says this, but be transformed. Don't be conformed by the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And Paul doesn't really explain what he means by the renewing of our mind. He doesn't tease that out for us. But I think that we have good reason to think that it is directly connected to the first sentence of these thoughts. And I hope, I hope there is a part of you that cringed when I skipped the very first sentence of this passage, when I started to unpack it. Because if we miss this, if we aren't constantly seeing this, then we're always going to be missing the gospel in our life. And Paul says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, in view of God's mercy, offer yourselves as living sacrifice. It says, look, look at Jesus and see God's love for you. Look at Jesus and see his compassion for you and the mercy that he has on you. Look at Jesus and find the delight in the fa- and delight in the fact that you don't have to carry a burden to the temple. That Jesus is your sin offering. Look at Jesus and know that we don't have to live in fear that God will leave us. Look at Jesus and know that we don't have to believe that God is against us. Look at Jesus and know that you are strongest when you declare your weakness and know the freedom there is in that. Look at Jesus and know that nothing can separate us from the love of the Father. Look at Jesus and know that although God is pleased when we offer our entire lives to him, that pleases him, that his smile over us does not fade when we don't. And we miss that, we completely change our motivation 
as to why we are offering a sacrifice to God. When we fix our eyes on the cross, we stop and behold God's mercy. Our motivation will change from fear to gratitude. From earning to receiving. Our response will not be for ourselves, but for our Father. Another way to translate true and proper worship is reasonable service. And the word for that is actually logical. It's the same Greek word for logical. It's our logical response. When we behold God's mercy, in view of God's mercy, what else are we going to do but give him every part of us? Imagine a father watching his young son play baseball for his team, having spent hours in the yard teaching him batting technique. This father already loves his son fully and completely. And if his son forgets his father's instructions and strikes out, of course it will have no way, it will in no way lessen the father's love for him or his approval of him. The son is assured of his father's love regardless of his performance when he's up to bat. But the son will still long to hit that home run, not for himself to gain his father's love, but for his father because he is already loved. If he doesn't know his father's love, his efforts will be for himself to win that love. But because he knows his father already loves him, his efforts are for his father to please him. That's the difference that the gospel makes. That your father loves you this morning. And he continues to love you even if you've been up to bat a hundred times and you've struck out every single time. Let's not settle with strikeouts. Let's play this game of life together and make our lives home runs for our Father. Let's pray. And so, Father, thank you that we can come to you in view of your mercy, that we can come to you in the assurance that Jesus gives us. And so, Father, as we've as we read this passage, and it concludes by saying, then, then we'll be able to test and approve what your will is, what your good and pleasing and perfect will is. God, that's what we desire. That we'll be able to know your will that is good for us and pleasing and perfect. That's what we long for, for our lives. And so, God, would you help us to see again this morning? We recognize our blindness. We recognize our tendency to divide and say that you're not a part of this. We don't come to you in fear because of that. We come to you for grace. We don't come to you earning. We come to you receiving. And so would you give to us again this morning? Would you fill us with the knowledge of your mercy? So, Father, then we'd be able to know and approve what your will is for us. So we pray these things in Jesus' name.